Hello and welcome to the podcast. Our mission is for every man, woman and child to be empowered with the knowledge of how to be happy. The goal of this show is to introduce you to the people and the ideas that will help you live truly fulfilling lives. Today, I've got a friend back on the show for round two, Carl Honoré. Carl is the author of the international bestseller, In Praise of Slow, which dissects our speed-obsessed culture and celebrates those who have gotten in touch with their inner tortoise, as well as the books Under Pressure, The Slow Fix, and his latest book, Boulder. Carl's TED Talks have been viewed millions of times, and he has been described as the unofficial godfather of a growing cultural shift towards slowing down. Carl, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Good to be with you. You've been you've been unbelievably patient. The people back home listening to this will have no idea, but this was meant to start half an hour ago, and we've had. I, I, I was going to say we've had technical issues. You have had no technical issues. I've had a thousand technical issues, and you've just been waiting patiently at the other end of Skype. So I apologize and thank you for being so patient. No worries. These 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 are the pitfalls of the pandemic. And um, and if I were impatient, that wouldn't be very slow. So it'd be a little bit off message, wouldn't it? <laughs> exactly. Like internally, you're like, what a dick. But outside, you're like, oh, no, it happens to anyone. It could be, you know, no biggie. So I, I, I appreciate you pretending that it's not my fault. <laughs> nah, no pretending. Because I, 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 because I, because like I say, this is a pandemic, chronic pandemic problem. I've been in the same boat. So I feel your pain. Well, I've, I've been I've, I've been watching some of your videos actually. You've been um, during the pandemic. You've been uploading a couple of videos, and I saw one video with um, I think I got a sneak peek of of your garden, which was uh, you were, you were looking phase in and meditating in the back of uh, on, on a oh, chair. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I was I, I quite like uh, MTV cribs or kind of being nosy. So I was like, oh, that must be uh, that must be his garden. It looked very nice. A lot of plants. That's, that's my garden in South London, which is it's modestly sized as many South London gardens are, but. It, obviously, during the pandemic, it's taken on, you know, epic proportions because <laughs> it's often the only outside world you can get at. But uh, yeah, I just I remember that video. Yeah, that was a very uh, gentle bit of Zen filming that went on. Our beliefs about aging work as a self-fulfilling prophecy, don't they? Studies show that worshipping youth and denigrating aging makes us actually age less well. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the most astonishing and horrifying discoveries I made during my research, I mean, uh, I, I was well aware that we were all marinated in the cult of youth and we wander around with this terrible rucksack of negative prejudices about growing older. But I didn't realize that actually buying into those prejudices was would, 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 would take a toll. So, yeah, as you say, the, the, the research shows pretty clearly that if you buy into the cult of youth, if you buy into the idea that uh, growing older is all about sliding downhill it will be so you're more likely to suffer from cognitive and physical decline to develop dementia and even to die younger up to seven and a half years younger right so so it, so actually wow. buying into cult of youth or embracing ageism if you like to use that the key word here is the ultimate act of self-harm we actually began to embrace this attitude in the in the 1960s i think why did this new way of thinking come about in the 60s? I think I think it was more a kind of demographic shift. You know, we had the baby boom after the war, and then we suddenly had this rush of affluence across the culture. And so you had the emergence of the teenager as a as a cultural trope, as, as an idea, right? And, and, and youth began to take on its own garnishes, right? Its own way of being in the world, its lingo, its it's it's um fashion it's music and so on and that kind of moved right into the center of the cultural conversation so that it became that youth for the first time in human history became something to aspire to right it was kind of like it became the cool thing to be young and that had never really probably been the way the case in the past i mean it was always a mixed 
bag in the in, in history. One of the great myths is that throughout human history and in the past pre-modern era that everybody looked up to their elders and everybody who was older was on a pedestal and it was great going growing older and everybody looked forward to aging. That, that, that's not true. It was a much more complex picture and people, even you go back to the Roman era and you'll find people poking ruthless and nasty fun at their, at their elders, right? So it's, it, it's, a, it's a mixed picture in the past, but what happened from the 60s on, I think, is that the, the needle swung right off to the other end of the spectrum where suddenly the whole idea of aging began to inspire everything from fear and disgust to guilt, shame, and it just became a thing that people were embarrassed to talk about. That's why if you Google, you go to Google search and you type in, I lie about my, the number one answer that comes up is, is right, <laughs> it's not a, you know, it's not, it's not weight, height, income. It's not even how much porn I watch. It's how old I am, right? You know, aging and ages that make us feel so bad about growing older that we lie about how old we are. The studies show that across the globe, human beings tend to follow a U-shaped happiness curve. So this is this is good news for anyone who is worried about it. What what does that mean, a U-shaped happiness curve? Well, again, one of the great myths of aging is that you know older people are are unhappy. That aging makes you sad and depressed. And you know, think of those phrases we use: you know, grumpy old man, crotchety old woman. But actually, as you say, human beings do follow what's called a U-shaped happiness curve, meaning they start out. You know, high and happy in childhood fall pretty steadily till they bottom out somewhere in middle age and then bounce back up again. So that across most developed nations, you'll find that the adult group that report the highest levels of happiness and life satisfaction are the over 55s, which, you know, goes completely against the cult of youth narrative, which is that, you know, you better have all your fun now because the second half of life is all doom and gloom. It ain't. <laughs> what I found interesting about that is what the scientists have detected about there might be actually a similar uh, curve in chimpanzees and orangutans. And in bonobos as well. They've seen a similar curve going on there. So, yeah, it's, it could well be that this happiness boost in later life is coded into our primate genes. There, there are a whole re range of reasons to think that might be the case or to th theories of why it would be the case. What would be the evolutionary benefit of a happiness boost in later life? One of the theories that I find most convincing is that having simply having if you think back to you know our ancestors on the savannah right pre pre-civilization times you know having upbeat hopeful grandparents around would be a bonus right uh, it, it, the, the, wor the worst thing for a tribe trying to survive and eke out a living in 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 you know sub-saharan africa or something in in you know way back when would be having a bunch of you know griping crotchety unhappy <laughs> If they're upbeat and they're able to see the upside and they're able to process bad news and deal with it in a more hopeful and upbeat kind of way, then that's got to be good for the tribe, right? So I, I suspect that's probably part of the explanation. That's that's a re that's a really interesting explanation. I was going to think because if if they weren't if if they were no longer like going out running down on a like buffalo and they were also like really miserable to be around, it's like oh shit, like what's like grandpa? So I think the fact that they're really upbeat, it's like. Exactly. Go on, let's, let's keep grandpa around for a bit longer. Keep him a little, yeah, that's right, yeah. But he's, he, otherwise, it's time to, you know, for him to ship out or leave him behind the next time the tribe moves on, right? <laughs> I mean, I, th I think one of the reasons, I think one of the reasons that people feel happier in later life is that as we grow older, we, we tend to get more comfortable in our own skin, more at ease with ourselves and our place in the world. And we're less, we feel less beholden to other people's opinions and expectations. I mean, the famous agony ant, the United States, Ann Landers once said that at 20, we worry about what other people think of us. 
at 40, we stop worrying about what other people think of us. And at 60, we realize they were never thinking about us at all. Right? <laughs> and I think, I think what that gets at is that, what's the right word? Lightness or freedom that comes upon us in later life where we're able to just let all of those expectations of other people fall off. And we're able to focus in on what really lights us up, what really puts fire in our bellies and and let the other stuff fall by the wayside. And I, I suspect that probably explains part of this happiness boost as well. You, we just get better at this thing called life, right? Carl Jung, the, the, old, the psychotherapist, the famous psychotherapist, once said that life really does begin at 40. Up until then, everything else is just research. And I think there's a kind of truth in that. I want to talk again about like how important it is that the language that we use. So like language affects how we how we think, how we feel. Why why should we watch out for words like still? They're still doing X, they're still doing I. what how how important is our language? Well, language is crucial and there's studies across all fields of human endeavor and all human disciplines that show that the language we use affects our behavior, affects our feelings, and it affects our our outcomes as well, how well we're able to perform. So if you look at the, the whole world of describing aging all of the language we use, all of the terms that are woven into our vernacular are grim, bleak, and downbeat, right? They're all about the idea that aging is is, a, is decline, it's loss, it's sadness. So you think, you know, that the word still, you know, he's still working, she's still going for runs, uh, or senior moment, or feeling my age, or, uh, you know, age before beauty, uh, or the wrong side of 40. All of these phrases, you know, we often utter them with a twinkle in the eye and a little bit of self-deprecation, and it's often a bit of fun to leaven the moment. But actually, the trouble is that every time you utter those phrases, you are reinforcing the myth, the lie that aging is all about decline. And you fall into that trap we talked about earlier, which is the self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, you're mm. reinforcing in your own head and even maybe worse in other people's heads around you. The idea that aging sucks. And we know, again, as I've said before, that if you buy into the idea that aging sucks, aging is going to suck. I think that's an important concept even beyond aging. Just I think we don't appreciate how powerful our words are. And our, our words, whatever we say, becomes a box and becomes our reality. We keep on being reinforcing it. Like the, the way we think about whatever, like love, relationship, money. We often say things just automatically. But when you actually think about the words you say again and again and again, for example, um, uh, I don't know, like whatever, they're out of my league or I can't afford it or this and that. Th th when we say those like thousands of times every day, that becomes that becomes our that becomes our identity. It's, words are so powerful. They are. And, and I, of course, I'm a writer, so I, lo I love words. I love the way they look on the page. I love the way they sound. But I also admire and even feel a kind of awe for the power they have to shape our lives and shape the world around us. There's no question that the words you use bring a filter and they orient your understanding of the world and the behavior you're going to bring to it and, and the things you're going to bring to the party. So getting the words right is absolutely essential. And we see this in everything, whether it's talking about race or gender or sexual orientation. If you choose the wrong words, you end up going down the wrong path. And now th the flip side of that, of course, is th there's a whole move out there or you know people who will tell you that the more you say something, you know, they kind of ask the universe for this and it will all happen. I don't quite go that far, right? Sure. Um, I don't think you can conjure anything up through language, but you can sure as heck do a lot of damage by using the wrong words. That That is patently clear, right? The, the, the science is there to show it. And I think we all know it in our own lives. If we look back and think of 
little phrases that have stuck, have scarred us from either from our parents or an early girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever it is, just a a little phrase or something about us that we've never forgotten 20 years later, right? Words matter. In your book, you include a quote by um, Allen Ginsberg, whoever controls the media, the images controls the culture. What made you pick that? Well, I think, I mean, more and more we live in a kind of mediated society. We're completely surrounded by visual and oral and linguistic wallpaper, right? Selling us stories, pushing narratives on us. And those stories and narratives matter. They shape again how we feel about ourselves, what we can achieve, what we can aspire to, what we're capable of. And so if you live in a world where all of the imagery coming at you, all of the visual narratives are telling you that it's all over by 35, you know, or game over at 42, right? Then you're, <laughs> you're going to end up believing that, right? You're going to end up falling into the trap and, and slithering downhill from whatever age you're drawing the line at. So a big part of reinventing our attitude to aging, redefining aging for the 21st century is going to be about changing the mediascape, you know, creating a different look to the world around us, whether it's on social media or in advertising or in political uh, broadcasts or you know public service announcements is on using language using imagery in ways that tells a different story about aging an aging story that is richer more nuanced uh but also more optimistic i want our audience to hear about an old lady called jacko oh, um, yeah. what what is what what is the pharmacy sketch oh good old the pharmacy sketch uh, well the pharmacy sketch was a a kind of you know a candid camera jeremy beetle for british listeners thing where a woman in her 80s, small, frail, in a sort of frayed housecoat, t- turns up in a pharmacy in, in Beirut and in a fairly loud voice asks for Viagra, right? And, you know, has a back and forth with the pharmacist who's in on the joke, but they're filming the reaction of all the other people in the in the um, in the pharmacy. And it's just, you know, I don't understand Arabic, obviously it's Arabic, but it's just comedy gold, right? The expressions of the people who range from shock, horror, and disgust to, you know, bending over and, and just roaring with laughter at the idea of a, a woman in her 80s, uh, well, A, asking for Viagra, or B, presumably having sex at all. And uh, it's just part of a, a series of programs which has made a, a real splash in the Arab world out of Lebanon where they take older people, put them in counterintuitive, surprising positions, you know, uh, whether it's ordering a high-end laptop or inspecting lingerie in a park or whatever it is, and just sort of m- monitor and, and record the reactions of people around them. And it's a way of just poking at that kind of, again, the cult of youth, the idea that people can't be alive and in the world and doing doing fun things, having sex, buying Viagra at whatever age, you know. And um, the woman who stars in the Viagra sketch is called Jacko. And she was one. I, whenever people ask me who is the person who sticks with you most from all your interviewees for the book Boulder, it's I think it's probably Jacko. I mean, she was just an extraordinary character. She led lived a, a very quiet, modest, uninteresting, pretty uninteresting life, running a guest house in Lebanon, in in Beirut for for all her life until in her sort of seventies she was discovered, you know, by this program Live Long and became this the star of the the show and uh, it became a like an influencer and a, and a household name across much of the Arab world. And she just had such a glorious light touch and a, a way of seeing the funny side of things. And she was just an extraordinary character, right? I and mean, she was such a perfect example of how, A, it's never too late to 
you know, dream a new dream or <laughs> start a new career or have fun doing something else. And, and also it's never too late to just be alive, right? She was just full of joie de vivre, right? She was just such a wonderful character. And um, I thought she really shone out luminously from the pages of the book. I, I Googled her also on, um, I, I looked her up on YouTube and I also don't speak Arabic, but I was just watching it just without, even without understanding the words. Uh, it was fascinating just watching her and she keeps such a deadpan yes. face. Yeah. I think like some of the translations were on, on she was asking, saying, um, no, I've got a much older man and he's, oh no, he's a Tarzan in the bedroom or just so, such a deadpan face. She has such a, she has such a comic gift and the reactions of the other people in the pharmacy are just comedy comedy gold and, and there's another sort of story or moral or lesson to pull out of this as well which is laughter right i mean that's such an important part of i mean we know again the science shows very clearly that that laughter has all kinds of physical benefits for our health um, and emotional ones as well and i think just keeping that ability to see the funny side to just to you know move through life with a light touch not get too bogged down of course i mean life brings things that are heavy poignant you know terrible painful but but also always if you can keep up that ability to laugh then i think you're you're setting yourself up both to live well and age well which are two sides of the same coin right in some ways are the same thing and, and jacko is just such a perfect avatar of that that mindset the concept of our life being split into three rigid stages like one early life education learning two middle years working and building family, then three late years pension and leisure. Where did that script come from? Well, it, it feels like it comes from a long time ago, but of course it's quite a recent phenomenon in the sense that, you know, most, most industrialized nations only started creating, you know, pensions and paying people to in that stage of life towards the end of the 19th century. So it's all that throughout human history, that is really a small period of time that we've had it a century or so. Um, up until then, people more or less worked until they dropped, right? Or couldn't work anymore, and then they would fall on the, the mercies of their family or the, the village or so on. But but people didn't live so long as a general rule. Uh, but of course, you get into the modern era, the sort of industrial era, and suddenly people are living longer. They're living longer than they can work, or they want to work, or the system is set up for them to work. So you've got this weird, huge chunk at the end um, where people aren't, weren't sure what to do. But for most of the 20th century, they didn't last long in that chunk, right? They would retire. And then within a few years, most people were dying. But towards the end of the 20, 20th century, and well, in the, now where we are in the 21st century, that third section of pension leisure has got stretched right out as people live, you know, average ages are over 80 in most of the developed world. So people, you know, retiring in their 50s, 60s, you know, <laughs> looking at 20, 30 years more of life. And the idea that that should just be pension leisure makes absolutely no sense anymore. So I think this weird blip of the three-stage life path is is this it's past its sell-by date, which is why you're starting to see gradually, sometimes grudgingly, you know, governments, companies, communities, just citizens, all of us trying to move towards something more fluid, trying to break up the straitjacket of those three stages so that because, of course, the idea that you would only learn and do education in the early years, again, that seems like something that doesn't make sense in the modern world where things are changing so fast and you've got to keep learning and and, and to stay relevant um, culturally in the workplace, technologically, etc. So learning has to be lifelong rather than confined to that first stage. And why do we have to earn money only in those middle two or three decades? Why not spread it out a bit more? Why do we tend to confine 
you know, volunteer work and all the charity stuff that pensioners tend to do now. Why does that have to be something that you wait till you retire to do? Why can't we have people being of service to others throughout their lives? So I think what we're lurching towards and where we want to end up is something much more fluid where you don't have these rigid chapters or rigid states. You just have a long life path, right? It starts at zero and it goes up depending on when you die to whatever, I don't know, 75, 85, 95, 105. And all along that path, you decide at whatever stage you are, what the mix is going to be for you. You know, how much of it is going to be paid labor? How much of it is going to be volunteer? How much is going to be learning? How much is going to be, um, you know, family raising children and so on. And each person having the freedom to define what that age means for them in that moment. I think that's what we, we want to aspire to now. And it's within our grasp, right? We have the, the know-how, we have the affluence. What we need to change is the, the, the cultural hold back, right? We need to slough off the old prejudices and biases and hangups so that we can step into this brave new world where what matters is less and less how old you are. What will matter is the choices you make at that stage in your life. That is what will define you because we are moving into a world where chronological age is losing its power to define and limit us. And two good examples, you know, Amazon and Netflix have both stopped tracking their users by chronological age. They do it by taste now. All right. So what matters to Netflix is whether you watch Tiger King all the way through to the end. <laughs> Good choice. And I did. What matters to Amazon is what books you buy in the lead up to Christmas to give to your loved ones. Right. It, it doesn't matter to them whether you're 35, 55 or 95. Right. And that, I think, is a glimpse of the future, that chronological age, though still important because, you know, no one is the same at 55 as they were at 25, nor would they want to be, right? Um, we're all going to change. But the, that straitjacket power that chronological age has had in the past to box us in, to whisper at us in our ear, you're the wrong age for this. You're too young. You're too old. You know, that is going to fall away as people move into a new world where whatever age they are, they can just say, you know what? I'm age X. This is what I feel like doing now. This is what I'm capable of doing physically, emotionally, psychologically, and I'm just going to let it rip. And I think that's where, we, where we're moving. I like your optimism. I like you coming out and telling us a different story, some, some different things that fly against what we're constantly told. I always appreciate talking to you. It's, it's always fun. So thank you. And you've also been extremely helpful in helping me like make introductions. And I'm really appreciative to all of yeah, everything that you've done for me. So thank you. My pleasure. It's a, it's it's um it's an honor and a and a and a joy to help out. Happiness dot info.